G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you have spoken and that we can hear. And God, we pray that we might not just have listening ears today, but hearts that listen, that wills, that we have wills that want to be instructed by our Lord and God. We pray that you'd work that in us for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're looking at chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Evangelism. Evangelism. Uh, it's a word that means many different things uh, to different people. Well, I, I suppose I should say it's not so much that the word means different things. We know what the word means. Uh, the word evangelism, what does it mean? That's pretty straightforward. It's about sharing the gospel. It's about proclaiming the good news. It's about speaking out the, the word of the king. Evangelism, the word is pretty straightforward. Yeah, but evangelism, well, for some of us, it stirs up all these other things, doesn't it? There's more to it than just the definition. Evangelism, what is it for you, I wonder? For some of us, perhaps it's about bullying. You know, we've had an experience, we've had a bad experience and it was called evangelism, where we were kind of bullied or Bible bashed and we'd rather not go back there. For others of us, evangelism is about guilt in a way. Uh, we feel the burden of it or the burden to do it and be part of it, perhaps against our better judgment, a burden to speak up. But we're motivated all the while by guilt, anxiety. I think the idea runs something like this. If I neglect evangelism any longer or any more than I already am, then there's blood on my hands because my loved ones, my friends, my colleagues across the cube at work will slide gently into hell and it's all my fault. It's an emotionally loaded idea for us. Evangelism. For others of us, it's an inconvenience. For some of us, it's a disappointment at experiences gone bad. But for some of us, it's precisely the opposite as well. For some of us, we've seen those marvellous things. As people, who have come, as people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus through evangelism and perhaps we pine just a little bit after that golden era in our lives back then when it came more easily to us, when we just seemed to have more open doors for the gospel back then at that stage in our life where evangelism just seemed to have more of us. It's got our heart in a way, evangelism. And I suspect for most of us, it's a bit of a mix of all of those things. Well, brothers and sisters, welcome to Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter that we have at least. And I'm going to say up front, it is about evangelism. It's about sharing the message of Jesus with the world. It's some of the last words, some of the uh, final preparations, some of his setting things in order, I suppose you could say, of the great veteran missionary evangelist, the Apostle Paul setting things in order as he hands uh, his wisdom on to his ministry companion, to Timothy. And it's a call to evangelism. Each week, we'll take a chapter at a time. Each week, uh, we're going to be looking at a different angle on this theme that runs right throughout. 
Uh, but may I say this, at least on my reading, and I wonder if you experienced this as we just read it, I find 2 Timothy refreshing in the area of evangelism. I find it a breath of fresh air rather than this guilt-laden, heavy uh, burden. I mean, yes, it's, it's strident, it's earnest, it's pleading in a way, but rather than crushing me, it kind of makes me feel more whole. Rather than guilt dumping on me, I find that it helps me to look at the gospel with a renewed lightness, a brightness, even an optimism as we think about how we're going to reach the world around us. Rather than leaving me harangued about it or with a burden to harangue the poor people around me, I find it leaves me, yes, keen to speak about Jesus, but not as a Bible basher, so much as someone who loves Jesus and just doesn't want to stay quiet about Him. And I wonder if that's going to be our experience as we go through. I certainly hope so. So that's my prayer for us. For today, brothers and sisters, let me give you the simple word to us uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 1, as I struggle with my microphone a little bit. It's uh, just got caught up there. Let me give you the summary uh, as we come to 2 Timothy and chapter 1. It's this, there may be many things that hold us back from the cause of the gospel in this life, all sorts of things that hold us back from speaking of Jesus but don't let shame be one of them. Don't let being ashamed of Jesus be one of those reasons. Don't let shame keep you from opening up about our great Lord, because He is our heritage. He is our all-sufficient Saviour from God, and it is a truly beautiful thing when people stand up for Jesus and don't worry about the shame. That's what we're going to see today. I have three quick points. Well, I think they're quick, you know what that means. You're used to me by now. Uh, Three quick points. Don't be ashamed, but remember your roots. Don't be ashamed, but remember it's God's eternal plan. And don't be ashamed, remember to actually stand up. So that's where we're going today. But before I do that, I'd like to set the scene quickly. Perhaps you've come to 2 Timothy uh, cold, I'm sure most of us have actually. Um, And it sounds like this bright letter. This happy letter, this upbeat uh, kind of a thing, the tone is very bright, even when, as I said, it's serious and earnest. Well, do take into account the setting that Paul wrote it from. There are little hints throughout, I wonder if you pick them up, little hints that we get about Paul's setting as he wrote from a prison in Rome. Here's Christopher Green describing the prison scene there. He says... The prisons in Rome were squalid and physically dangerous and delays in court procedures meant that they were usually overcrowded way beyond their capacity. Unheated, sleep was almost impossible on rough pallets or floor with no bedding provided. Paul would also have been wearing heavy iron chains, perhaps linked to other prisoners to prevent anyone from escaping. The iron reacting with the prisoner's sweat rusted, making their flesh rot. Their heaviness on weaker limbs, already short of food, and as many prisoners commented, the constant noise of the chains on stone was yet another factor, making sleep impossible. Food beyond a meagre prison ration, which was barely enough to sustain life, was the prisoner's own responsibility. But how could Paul, alone and cut off in Rome, arrange that? Lack of access to water meant that the prisoners weren't just filthy, 
but frequently unrecognisable from the caked on dirt and the matted beard and hair. For who would trust violent prisoners with access to a barber and his razors? Clothes rapidly reduced to rags in such circumstances. It's no wonder that prisons were associated not only with execution, but also with death from disease and not infrequently, suicide. I don't want to go on and on, but would you get that picture from from the tone that Paul uses? Listen in as we open this letter now and the warmth and, and so forth that's coming from there. I guess I'm saying that Christ has so captivated Paul that it's almost as if you can't see the backdrop that it's coming from. Anyway, with that backdrop in place, Timothy, don't be ashamed of Jesus, point one, instead, remember your roots. Listen out now for the fondness, for the warmth, uh, for the affection even in these opening verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and of self-discipline. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, there's nothing that remarkable about a letter opening like that. Uh, it's an affectionate way to start the letter. You know, Timothy, I remember you with such fondness. I remember your tears. I remember, gosh, we've had some good times together. In some ways, it's an unremarkable letter opening. Maybe it's a little bit remarkable to you that an apostle would wear his heart on his sleeve quite that much. I mean, gosh, this is, an, this is a gushing kind of a letter opening. But what's Paul's caper here? Why does he start with all of this affection? What is he driving at, especially when so quickly in verse 7 he gets down to the business of calling Timothy away from fear, as that translation had it, or timidity or cowardice, as it should be? What's his caper? Why does he start this? What's with mentioning his mum and his grandma so early on, as in verse 5? Well, I think it's got to be this, doesn't it? Timothy, I know that there's a temptation for you to back out. And I know that there's a temptation for you to back down and be ashamed of Jesus in your ministry and in your life. I know there's a temptation for you to become a coward. I know that is all weighing on you, Timothy, but I want to set before you what's on the other side of the scales as well. Right at the opening, I want you to begin, I want you to see the things that are weighing on the other side of the scales, Timothy. Remember your roots, Would you take a look, Timothy, at what you'd have to turn your back on to turn your back on Jesus? Would you take a look? Just weigh carefully. Look at the heritage that you would have to turn your back on. You may be feeling the pressure in other areas of life, but could you turn your back on this? Verse 5, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice 
and I'm persuaded, now lives in you also. Could you turn your back on that, Timothy? Could you become timid and fearful now? Bring it forward to today. Can I say this? If you're here today and you feel the pressure this week, or last week just gone, the pressure to go quiet on Jesus, or to bow out on the Gospel altogether, to back out on Jesus, here's what I want to say. Weigh very carefully the godly heritage that you receive Jesus within. Weigh very carefully the love of those who poured Jesus into you and your love for them. Because it would mean turning your back on that, wouldn't it? Some of you were raised on Jesus with your mother's milk, basically. And they were raised on Jesus with their mothers and they were raised on, do you see? Look at the Look at what you would have to turn your back on, Timothy. The heritage of people committed to passing Jesus onto their children and the people around them and their grandchildren, don't count that lightly. Remember your roots. Now, as heavy a word as that may seem, These verses stick out to me for another reason. I'd like to just have a quick aside here. Look at this from another angle and it's this. You mums amongst us or you young dads, here's a word for us, I reckon, for the mums amongst us who find themselves, what, Thursday morning, working their way at the nappy change table through the second jumbo pack of nappy wipes for the week and wondering, what am I doing? If that is you, then here is a word for you. Teaching, gospel teaching, gospel preaching, Jesus exalting ministry and the mums get a mention. Does that surprise you? The great Apostle Paul deigns to mention the mums and the grandmas in Timothy's life and he points to them and says, have a look at their ministry, would you? Might not feel like it on Thursday morning as you're scratching around for another wife. So when you're straining with all of your patience to read that devotion at the breakfast table and another bowl of cereals just gone on the floor and another cup of milk's just spilled across the table. You know what I'm talking about. And there's the off-topic distractions and interruptions just come thick and fast. As you're straining away trying to share Jesus at the breakfast table, remember Timothy. Remember Timothy. These are your roots, mate. Don't bow out now. It's often the mums and dads who are the heroes of the faith, the grandmas and grandpas, the aunties and uncles, those who quietly get alongside the children and establish them in a heritage of faith. It matters. Dare I say it, I reckon a church that really gets this, well, we're never going to struggle to fill the Sunday school roster if we do, right? Because we're going to be committed to this, we're going to be in this, we're going to want to see our kids raised with a godly heritage. So first of all, don't be ashamed, but remember your roots, Timothy. But second, don't be ashamed, because remember, this is God's eternal plan that we're talking about. It's God's plan. Uh, The focus here is um, on the eternity of God's plan, I think, as we move into this next paragraph. And the upshot is that as much as we find it hard to believe in our day and age, Jesus is good news for our generation, Have we forgotten that? 
Jesus is the good news, even for our generation. He is not stale, he is not done with, he hasn't gone off because we've left him in the cupboard too long. I think we kind of get to thinking sometimes that our generation uh, is somehow disconnected from history, out on its own and unreachable by Jesus. Mark Knoll says, uh, it's a mistake, he says this, historian, he says, at the end of the 20th century, concern for history is daily undercut by the excitements of the moment or threatened by fears and aspirations for the future. Yet nothing could be more damaging to an understanding of the Christian faith than neglect of the past. Listen to how Paul uh, says that the gospel is very much for Timothy's generation in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. So don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, he talks about that purpose, about that grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality, past, present, future, do you see, to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him or as that one says it, uh, what he's entrusted to me. How does it put it? I can't see it on the screen now. Ah, we're short of verse. Anyway, the ESV has that verse finishing. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what he's entrusted to me for that day. In other words, the gospel. God is up to the task. Past, present and future, the gospel is good for our generation. And brothers and sisters, I wonder if you can relate to this because I start to thinking sometimes that Jesus isn't enough. Not for today. Not for the hard-nosed people of this generation today. Maybe for past generations, it must have been different for them back then, I suppose. Perhaps, I don't know, they were less sophisticated, I think, in my, you know, ageist superiority. Perhaps they didn't have the advances that we have. Perhaps they... Brothers and sisters... This is not, these last few decades are not the decades that have taken God by surprise. His plan is eternal. His gospel is eternal. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, now revealed through the coming of Christ, who's destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He can guard it to the end of time. Brothers and sisters, let's not be ashamed of something just because it's old, just because it's ancient. Let us not be ashamed of our Jesus merely because he effectively saved people back then and yet we see people reject him now in our generation. Let's not be ashamed of Jesus. Let us not be ashamed of a saviour who can speak to our fears for the future, who can speak to us in the present of God's eternal plan. Don't be ashamed. Remember, Jesus is good even for today. 
is God's eternal plan. And finally, don't be ashamed of Jesus, but remember to put that into practice. Remember to actually stand up for Jesus. Do you recall how we began? We began in the prison in Rome. Um, Well, here's, I think, the thing that we find hard to wrap our heads around. Because maybe you're thinking, prison, well, what's such a big deal? Why, I mean, if I was in prison, you guys would come and visit me, wouldn't you? If you were in prison, wouldn't I come and visit you? What's such a big deal about that? I mean, it would be awkward, perhaps a little odd. But why is that such a big deal? Why did everyone seem to abandon Paul? Why is it just this one guy? Why does he make such a big deal out of Onesiphorus going out of his way? Admittedly, it must have been hard to find Paul with the caked on dirt and the probably sick. Why make such a big deal out of it? Well, because it meant so much more back then. Uh, A modern historian, a specialist in first century history writes this. He says, one of the most difficult things for ancient history students to get their heads around when first exploring the subject is the place Mediterranean societies, so like this, gave to honour and shame. Honour was universally regarded as the ultimate asset for human beings and shame the ultimate deficit. Now, which end of the scale is Paul on as he was rotting away in a prison in Rome? So much so that the academics frequently refer to Egyptian, Greek and Roman societies simply as honour, shame cultures. Much of life revolved around ensuring you and your family received public honour and avoided public shame. So what does that look like in practice? Well, he gives an example. He says, uppermost in a father's mind. So you fathers, think of this. Uppermost in a father's mind in the ancient world was not whether his son would be happy in the modern sense of the word or make money or live morally, but whether the boy would bring honour to the family, especially the father and himself. This might be accomplished through participation in military victory, advancement through the ranks of official society or by some great service in the village. In all of these things, the thought was not so much the importance of conquering those evildoers or making a difference to civic life or benefiting others or whatever. The chief good was the respect and praise that comes through these activities and the way they confirm the merit of the one so honoured. So Paul's an outcast, rotting away in a prison in Rome. There is no merit, there is no honour, there is no cred, there is no respect. In fact, you get caught up with him and it's exactly the opposite and it means everything. And I guess I want us to feel that as we read these last verses now, feel that because for all the cred that you might lose for being a Christian at work or talking up Jesus at school or in that tute at uni, this is that but turned up to 11. That's what Onesiphorus has done here. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, 
because he often refreshed me and wasn't ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Brothers and sisters, what's it going to be that keeps us from speaking of Jesus, from standing up for him, for taking a stand for him, for opening our mouths and speaking of our Lord? May it not be shame. The gospel is so good and you learned it from people who love you and you love them. And when you see that commitment played out in real life, in people despising the shame but standing up for Jesus anyway, like a man who would rather go to a prison to visit a rotting man than leave a brother there. That is a beautiful thing, that is a powerful thing. There may be things that keep us from speaking of Jesus, but let not shame be one of them. I'll close with this from Christopher Green. He says, the charge to Timothy is gradually becoming clearer. Paul is suffering for the gospel, but he is not ashamed. Onesiphorus was unusual in being willing to be identified with this marked man because he was not ashamed. And Timothy has already been put on notice that Paul thinks this is an issue for him. Don't be ashamed, chapter 1, verse 8, to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, it was not beneath the Lord Jesus to give up the glory of heaven and come to earth for us. He did not think that too much of a stoop, but he gladly came for us and for our salvation. And so, Father God, may we rejoice in our Lord, even to the point where we don't care what the critics think. Father, may we weigh very carefully what a thing it is to be ashamed of Jesus. And may we instead rejoice in our great Saviour, the eternal plan of our God for our rescue, the one who loves us more than life itself, and may we stand up for him. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.